everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we are talking with Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez. He became DA in 2016 after his predecessor, Ken Thompson, died. And in 2017, he won his own term. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you for having me. Uh, very nice uh, to speak to you, David. So I'm almost afraid to ask, but uh, how are things in New York right now? It's pretty grim um, in terms of what's happening due to COVID-19. Um, we've lost a lot of uh, people. There are a lot of people sick. Um, our police department um, estimates about 20% of its workforce is out, out of commission, um, either quarantined or with COVID-19. Um, and our jails are a breeding ground for COVID-19. And so things are, are um, at this moment in time, not as rosy as I would like them to be, for sure. So I think everyone at least in the criminal justice uh arena is really concerned about the situation at rikers island uh what are things like there right now well the reports that i get is that um people are still um, not physically separated um people are still dining together there's still um sanitary conditions that uh are outrageous. People don't have um, access to soap at all times. Um, the medical ward, I was told, is completely filled. They have people who have COVID-19 quarantined in other parts of the jail, um, but those that are not medical, uh, that's not the medical ward, just people who are suffering from fevers and other ailments, but don't have respiratory issues. Um, so things are, are grim, you know, a few days ago, um, they were, you know, two weeks ago, there was like one person. And then, you know, within a short period of time, there were over 200 people. Um, I didn't see this morning how many people they are saying have it, but we know that, you know, testing is not complete. Um, and so, you know, I'm aware of a few people who have high fevers and have other symptoms who have not been tested and are currently quarantined in, in Rikers. What would you like to see happen at this point? Well, you know, the jail population on the island, um, for your listeners, you know, 
it's scheduled. Rikers Island is scheduled to close in about um, five years, six years, 2026. Um, the island is supposed to be completely closed with New York City moving to borough-based jails and getting rid of the um, penal colony that's known as Rikers Island. Um, we know that you know we have to get as many people off that island um, and out of those conditions as possible. So we want to make sure that we're seeing releases. I estimate that um, Brooklyn has approximately, through different methods, um, released nearly 20% of the Brooklyn detainees on the island. That includes pretrial detention, people that were there on parole holds, and individuals that have had city sentences. Um, but there's more to be done. Um, but the island itself and the people who run that correctional facility, in my opinion, have not done enough to protect the people who are not going to be released, people who are there on very serious crimes, murder and rape and other very serious um, cases who are not going to be easily um, released back in the community. They have not provided adequate protection to those folks, and it's an outrage. Um, so what we can do is make sure the people who don't need to be there get off the island to help um, help further whatever mitigation efforts can still be done. And and who do you blame for for all of this? Um, the foot dragging and the lack of uh, attention to making sure that people are, are properly protected, even the people that have to remain there, but also you know, the people that could be released, what, what's stopping that from happening? Well, I, you know, I think we have to go back and just re-examine um, you know, why we have so many people there in the first place. And, you know, I think it's shrouded in a little bit in opaqueness. Um, you know, we're, we're not really understanding how they're making decisions on who gets released and who has to stay. Um, you know, there's been um, different lists um, and there have been different priorities. I can tell you what my office is doing. Um, we've, we've asked for a list of people who are on the island who have, who are at high risk, um, people who have, you know, pre-existing health conditions that make them particularly vulnerable um, to COVID-19. Um, if they're pre-trial detainee, we've been working with the defense attorneys to see if um, many of those individuals can be released. Um, there are some individuals who are there because they have mental health issues or, or drug uh, addiction issues. Um, those are particularly um, people who I don't believe should be on Rikers Island. And so we've been also working with the courts and the, um, the public defenders who've been doing a great job in helping us identify that population and seeing if we could get alternative housing or supervised you know, and supportive housing for these people, or if the defense attorneys or others can help find someone who's willing um, to bring that person into their home. Um, so they get tested for COVID-19 before they're released. And if they're safe, we're looking for other places to put them. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest um, concerns from a law enforcement standpoint, and really just from a human dignity standpoint, all of the services, the pretrial services and all the supportive services that were supposed to be in place for our folks um, in reentry um, back into the community has 
been suspended. So there's no live uh, reentry services. There's no live pretrial services. And so if you're particularly vulnerable, if you're a home, part of the homeless population, or you just don't have access to a cell phone or a, a Wi-Fi, then there is no services whatsoever. We still try to do some services by phone, um, but the, those are the most vulnerable populations, and those are the, the folks that really the city has to come up um, with the answers to. They have to find places to put these people. It's not sufficient just to leave them on Rikers Island. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Rikers Island slated to close in a few years. And, I mean, this is a, a notorious institution, uh, and there have been lots of concerns over the years well before the current public health crisis, right? It's always been, you know, a hellhole, and we've known that. And it's one of the reasons why I was the first district attorney in New York State to support its closing and New York City to actively call for it to um, close. But in terms of what's happening now, you know, the CDC and other health organizations have mandates that um, and, and policies and procedures that could could have helped um, stop the spread. Um, and, you know, I think, and this is where, you know, some of the DAs, including myself, have been critical. We were not um, informed what those policies were and actually what the implementation was. And now that it's too late to, pre to prevent the, the spread, now we're really just sort of, you know, trying to mitigate um, the population that's currently there. I mean, the good news, um, to the extent that there's any good news coming out of Rikers, is that the population is well under 5,000 people right now. Um, remarkable just as a few years ago, it was 10,000 people, and, and many years ago, it was 20, 25,000 people. So we've gotten the population down tremendously, um, but there's still way too many people on Rikers Island that don't need to be there. And I'm doing my part in terms of declining to prosecute um, low-level and, and certain nonviolent cases so that we're not adding to that population, not asking for bail on those cases, um, and trying to prevent people from moving uh, from arrest to central booking to Rikers Island. You know, that period of time, I think people are particularly vulnerable because we know that the jail cells are small. Um, they're, they usually get taken to central booking and, and you know, very small um, and with other with, uh, small vehicles with other people. And then they're, they're held in a very confined place in central booking where people are susceptible to getting sick. So we're trying to limit that by just encouraging our police not to make those arrests unless absolutely necessary. And this office has declined to prosecute a number of those arrests so that these folks don't get sick and then go back home to their families and help continue to spread that disease. And I hope that it also protects our frontline police officers from having to deal with these, these arrests in the first place. So uh, I do want to talk kind of more broadly about criminal justice reform. Um, one of the big issues that's come down in New York is the bail reform, which uh, seems like it's uh, a moving target at this point. Uh, what is the latest there? So the Assembly, as we're speaking, is still um, working on a final version 
Um, I was told that the Senate has um, finalized a lot of their um, concerns as it relates to bail reform. The Assembly is still working. Um, when I ran for DA, um, I committed myself to being an advocate to ending cash bail. I took steps in my office to limit when DAs had the authority to ask for cash bail. Um, and prior to bail reform um, coming, you know, in January of this year, um, in Brooklyn, for example, on misdemeanor cases, bail was only set on 3.5% of the over 60,000 people um, that came in our local criminal court, um, a very small number. Um, and most of those cases came from cases involving either sex, sex crimes against children or domestic violence that were not felony cases. Um, so I know that it could be done, but I am an advocate for ending cash bail. I don't think we got there in this uh, uh, budget. It seems that um, there was so much controversy and so much fear around the uh, rollback of bail reform. So what it seems to have happened is that they've come up with a list of categories that have been previously excluded as qualifying bail offenses and they've added a number of those um, new offenses to uh, the bail statute. So now you can ask for bail in certain categories of cases where you, in the past you may not have. But I think the um, in its entirety, um, it, it wasn't a rollback um, because there's still no bail on misdemeanors, there's still no bail on the overwhelming majority of nonviolent felonies. Um, and so I think they held the line um, for the most part, but it's still ongoing, so we'll see. Um, but we did not get to ending cash bail. And for your listeners um, who don't understand you know, what that means, that means two people charged with the exactly same crime. Um, one person gets out because they have a little bit more wealth. Um, they have a family who can bail them out or they have money in their bank account. They get out. Another person as culpable um, but with less, less resources stay in. And I believe that's a discriminatory and biased um, system. It was a system here for a long time, but I will continue to advocate for that change. Um, and, and did you support uh, the initial legislation? The, I was, yes, in terms of what we have in place now, um, you know, that bill became as part of a budget bill. And unfortunately, we never um, really had open conversations about what it should look like. Um, but I was supporting the New Jersey model um, for the last couple of years, uh, which ended cash bail. Uh, the, the New Jersey model is not perfect. Um, and, you know, we can have a long conversation about the, you know, what's good and, and what's lacking from the New Jersey model. But what the, the, the good thing that the New Jersey model did was that, um, A, it got a lot of people out of jail. Um, the number of people in detention in Jersey dropped by about 40%. Um, the second thing it did is it eliminated cash bail. And the third thing that it did that was very important was that it required that um, data be kept on you know, what, when bail was set, and there was a lot of data entry points 
that would be useful for further discussions about what works and what didn't work. So um, I was happy that the legislature last budget um, did some work uh, in getting rid of bail um, on cases where we definitely know we didn't need bail. Um, but I'm like I said previously, I, I still think we haven't hit the mark yet of getting rid of cash bail in its entirety. Why is it so difficult uh, to get rid of cash bail? It, it it just seems like every jurisdiction is dealing with this exact same issue. New York may be more extreme, but you, you could talk to people across the country and they're dealing with the same thing. Well, it, it takes you know a little bit of political courage um, because you know it means that in most cases, in the the overwhelming majority of cases, people will be arrested and they won't be held in. Um, and I think, you know, for, as you know, prosecutors and law enforcement for a long time have sort of made in their name by being tough on crime and not, you know, advocating for people, um, to be able to stay out and, you know, uh, litigate their cases from the outside. So there's a political courage issue. I do think that New York is a little special um, because we don't have dangerousness built into our bail statute. And when you end cash bail, I think there's a valid concern that uh, a number of advocates have raised, especially during this budget negotiation, that um, it, if you do that, you may be giving unfettered discretion um, to judges on you know, who to detain uh, if they can't have bail. And so some people believe it's better to have bail. At least some people can get out that might not otherwise get out. I think there are things that we could put in place that would prevent that. Um, in, in general, there should be a very strong presumption of release on virtually um, most cases. And that if a judge were to hold someone in detention, I believe that there should be a hearing that the DA has to prove um, the elements of the crime and, the, and a lot of other factors. Um, by clear and convincing evidence um, to justify the detention. And that hearing should happen you know, 48 hours um, after the detention hearing. Um, so I think there's things we could do to make it work. Um, Jersey has done um, a lot, you know. Um, we have to see um, over the next year how this plays out in terms of are we holding more people in jail now than before? And very particular, does racial disparities go up or do they um, go down? Part of the Jersey model that um, people were concerned about was that the racial disparities initially um, seemed like it was moving in the right direction, but ultimately kind of stayed um, in, in the place where, you know, you were more likely to be detained if you were black or brown um, than white. And so that remains a concern. Um, so I want to talk about uh, wrongful convictions, and of, of course, in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the Conviction Integrity Unit uh, that operates out of your office is kind of a model. It was one of the early ones, was it not? Yes, uh, it started under my predecessor, Ken Thompson, who um, I served as chief assistant to. I, I helped him establish that unit, that unit in you know, five years time has uh, vacated 28 wrongful convictions. I think the unit is special in a lot of ways. There are other conviction review units um, in the country that really look at DNA evidence, more of 
So like the innocence project work, looking at DNA um, to help establish someone's, you know, innocence. Um, what we do in Brooklyn is, I think, a lot broader than that. You know, we're looking at actual innocence, but we're also looking at fairness and due process. Um, you know, we know that a lot of people have been convicted um, by trials that have been a failure um, because either information that the defense should have had or things that weren't known back then are now known. And so we take a much broader look at the cases to see whether or not we should stand by the conviction because of due process and fairness reasons. Um, so it, it's a much broader look and reinvestigation into cases. But it's done tremendous work. Um, out of the 28 people um, vacated, you know, a, a number of these people, the overwhelming majority have been in jail over 20 years. Some have been in jail for 30 years. They're real travesties of justice. Um, and we've done a lot. But what we've also learned from this post-conviction work is that um, the system has gotten things wrong and it's been sort of an acknowledgement that the system um, is not perfect and, and has failed people. And it's encouraged me to create a post-conviction justice bureau. Um, and one of the things that we do there is we help people seal their criminal convictions. We were the first district attorney's office in the state of New York to help um, vacate marijuana convictions. We've been looking at parole and clemency applications and working with the governor's office to encourage the governor to release people on clemency, especially compassionate release cases. Uh, but I think what's also very important is that we're starting to take a look at using our post-conviction bureau at these extremely long sentences that people were given in the 90s and 2000s, um, where they were getting 50 and 60 years for ordinary crime. Um, and many of these folks are still in. And so I'm supportive of legislation like California recently passed that allows for a second review of these folks who otherwise will never get out of jail in their natural life. Um, and this office is, is willing to uh, lead the way in doing that work here in New York State um, because I, I see numbers all the time that uh, shock the conscience, uh, you know, people who have been jailed years. And so right now, there are three clemency applications before my office that we are going to be supportive of and encourage, you know, the governor's office to um, grant clemency on and just, you know, continuing to work with the legislature to try to get a second look bill passed. So I'm just wondering, because um, in the last week, I interviewed somebody um, from the Innocence Project out of uh Durham, uh, North Carolina, Duke, uh, and uh, and then I interviewed somebody out of San Diego, California, and and both of these cases, one of them, uh, the conviction was 1976, and the other one was 1989. So one, you know, we're talking, you know, 44 years, um, and and both of them are just overwhelming. Uh, evidence uh, of innocence and neither one could they get uh so far at least uh, a court to exonerate why is it so hard to deal with these wrongful convictions um in part because there's a reluctance to acknowledge um that a judge or a jury or a prosecutor 
got it wrong or a defender didn't do their job appropriately in a case. I mean, this, this sort of institutional reluctance to acknowledge the harm that you know, and the errors that we've done. Um, I also think that, you know, a lot of states, especially, you know, I supported a an amicus in um, St. Louis where the courts basically say the DA don't, does not have the authority to go back and to ask the court to vacate these wrongful convictions. You know, there, there is no case law that allows the district attorney's office to do what we do. Um, you know, we, we operate under laws that are designed to do other things. So we have a 440 process in New York State that we're utilizing. But really, the laws in our states need to be amended um, to make it possible to do this. I, I'm aware of at least a few cases where a prosecutor has attempted to right a wrong and the courts have rejected it. And so um, I, we're going to need to really focus in on our state legislatures across the country and get these bills passed that allow the DAs to go back. You know, I believe it's a fundamental responsibility of a district attorney um, to do justice. That justice, you know, that responsibility to do justice doesn't end because the case is over. It's an ongoing responsibility. And so whether it's in the wrongful conviction context, which obviously is, you know, among the most horrific, um, you know, errors that the justice system could make, or whether it's someone who's just in jail and they're ready to be paroled or they're ready to be released, but um, the system doesn't allow that. Um, we have an obligation to continue the fight for those people. They are my constituents, by the way. You know, a uh, um, one out of three people upstate New York on a life sentence is from the county of uh, of Kings, which is Brooklyn, New York. Wow. Um, and, and then, what criteria are you guys looking for in order to seek a new trial or try to get a conviction thrown out? So the Conviction Review Unit does a, a thorough reinvestigation. Um, I can I can send sort of the uh, how we do this work, but it's collaborative with the defense attorneys. You know, they bring us information that they want us to review. Sometimes they have additional information or witnesses that we're not known about. Um, sometimes witnesses are recanting and we're re-interviewing them. Um, there is some DNA work that gets done to see if we can learn anything new that we didn't know back then. Uh, but for me, what it comes down to, and I think another special part of the Brooklyn, I'll plug the Brooklyn DA's conviction review unit. I think why it's considered the gold standard is, A, it's gotten a lot of people out of jail. Two, um, our unit has gone across the country to smaller DA's offices helping them to establish the protocols. We've given them the protocols that we've used. And three, we do something very special in Brooklyn. We have a dedicated team of lawyers, 10 lawyers who work on this stuff full time. They also have their own investigators that work on this full time. So these lawyers, these prosecutors are not prosecuting cases. They're only working on the reinvestigations of these old cases. But we also have an independent review panel, which are three outside um, lawyers who are not affiliated with the DA's office who work with the conviction review unit and they make a recommendation after reviewing the work that the conviction review unit does. They make that recommendation to me whether or not the person um, should be released and the conviction should be vacated 
or the, the person should be released and the case should be retried. Um, ultimately, I make the final decisions on all these cases, but the transparency that we're doing it collaboratively with the defense and that we have outside lawyers, um, you know, who have complete access to the files and the case and the case information makes the Brooklyn model very special. Um, so New York in, I guess, 2018 passed a prosecutorial misconduct bill creating a commission. Uh, ha- has that gotten underway, and what are your thoughts on that? It's still pending. I think there was litigation. Um, the court found it to be unconstitutional, and I believe there's still litigation, but nothing has happened with it since that time. Uh, there were some issues. Um, with the formation, uh, and I'm not an expert on this, but there's, there was an issue as it relates to who could pick the people that would be part of the um, oversight committee. Um, and the courts found that, um, for whatever reason, that only the judiciary, because the, the appellate divisions are supposed to do discipline, that they, they needed to be the people that would appoint folks and not the political people. So at this point, it's still sort of in, um, you know, in litigation status. Um, it doesn't look very promising, to be honest, but I can't really speak uh, too much more to it. It's been, like as you said, from 2018, you know, we're in 2020, and it's not even, it has not resurfaced as a legislative agenda issue. So do you see that as a viable way to hold prosecutors accountable, or do you think there are better avenues? I think that, um, you know, prosecutors should be subjected to um, a some sort of uh, oversight. And, uh, you know, that makes me sort of unusual in that regard. I think people, are, you know, don't want oversight. I think that, uh, um, you know, there's a proposal that, you know, we think would work and um, having oversight with uh, having uh, either academics or, or lawyers where um, folks could reach out to them in terms of, you know, looking at investigations of, you know, misconduct, uh, but that hasn't gotten off the ground. But in terms of oversight, uh, there should be oversight. Um, the appellate division currently is a mechanism in New York State to do the oversight. Um, and at the very least, um, there should be additional resources given to uh, that mechanism in the interim until something else is decided. You know, I am very aware of the fact that very few prosecutors are ever held accountable for, for claims of prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, at the very least, in order to, and I think this is an important component, the public has a right to have um, confidence in its justice system and it, if it makes, if that would be in um, a, met- a method by which the public would feel better about what's happening in the DA's office is that there was a, an enhanced oversight of prosecutorial functions, then we need to fund that. And so at the very least, if this prosecutorial misconduct commission never gets going, they should provide much more resources to the appellate division so they can have a dedicated attorneys that work on prosecutors' offices. The way it works now is that the appellate division um, 
has oversight over all attorneys, and there's no um, particular emphasis on any prosecutor or prosecutor's office. And then uh, what are your thoughts on police accountability? That's uh, always a big issue in New York. Yeah. So uh, last year, um, I created a law enforcement accountability bureau. It's the first time that we had a dedicated bureau in um, Brooklyn that was not um, split with other responsibilities. You know, we've always had in this office, you know, in the history of the office, people who looked at cases of police brutality, but we never had a dedicated bureau that only did that. So I created that last year with very seasoned um, prosecutors. There's six prosecutors in that bureau um, with a lot of resources um, to do this work. It's one of the most important things that prosecutors can do is to assure the community that no one is above the law. Uh, we've brought a number of cases in Brooklyn against uh, police officers who for various issues um, relating to their performance. Some have been involved in crime and, and bribery. Some have been brutality claims. Uh, but that's a bureau that has to be in every office. I think every DA's office has to have someone who does this work. And I, I don't think it can be separated um, from, you know, someone can't work with that police officer in day one and investigate them in day two. And that's why creating a specialized bureau that only does this work kind of shields them from sort of the pressures of having then to rely on that same precinct or that same police officer as they're investigating the case. Um, we are fortunate in New York State because the attorney general um, of the state has the uh, ultimate responsibility on the, the fatalities cases, right, where the police have killed someone. Um, so those cases go to the attorney general in New York State. Now, I read something very interesting in uh, the Marshall Project uh, about you and your approach to parolees. And I live in a county where um, I was just talking to somebody. The DA has opposed all but two parole applications this year and the only and the only two that uh he didn't oppose uh were kind of no-brainers and even there he didn't support them he just uh they didn't submit uh, but uh but you have a very different approach on parolees than most prosecutors right so we have a we've talked everyone understands the issue Show the people who are listening to your, your podcast understand mass incarceration, but we also have a mass supervision problem. You know, thousands of people on supervision. Many of them have no need to be on supervision in the first place. That supervision leads to rearrest um, on technical violations, and it yo-yos them out of our communities, causing further destabilization of their lives and the people who love them, and it does not keep us safer. Uh, the policy of this DA's office in the past was to ask for the maximum period of parole or probation on every case and to vehemently oppose early release. Um, it is the policy of my office now that we only ask for the, the minimum term of parole or probation if it's a, a, an agreed sentence. Uh, we've negotiated what we think is a fair and just sentence in the case and we do, we're not keeping people on the max parole. So for some people that means being on parole for one year versus being on parole for five years. Um, and 
it it is a it will relieve the pressure on parole offices to better do their jobs. It will mean less people are violated on technical violations, and it will ultimately keep us safer. Obviously, if someone needs to be on parole for longer, a DA has the authority to do that. They just have to speak with their supervisor and explain why they think parole needs to be uh, a lot for a longer period. But we, we've taken that, and this office works very closely with different organizations in jail to um, when people are getting ready to see a parole board to write letters in support of their release. We have a reentry person that will start working with people as they're getting eligible for parole um, and start getting the resources necessary and we'll, we'll work with them and, and figure out how we can best be supportive and what services we can start providing to them while they're still incarcerated. And then so when they're out, um, that they have a smooth transition out. And so I'm very proud of the work that we've done um, in terms of encouraging our parole board um, to be better. We've, we've seen a tremendous difference in Brooklyn in terms of when, when we write a letter in favor of a parolee's application to be released, um, it's overwhelmingly granted. And so we use that, um, we, we take that responsibility seriously. Um, we we often we've often actually visited the um, the inmate that's been held in jail and spoken spoken to them personally, and we've also actually done something that is also extraordinary. We've gone back to the survivors of the crime or the victim of the crime, and explained that we want to support the person's parole. We want to explain it to them, and on, and on some occasions we've even gotten um, those people to you know. Um, agree that parole makes sense. In fact, in a lot of cases, some people are actually shocked to know the person is still in jail 10, 15 years later. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out uh, from your day uh, during a very tough time for your your city and your community. Uh, Our hearts really go out to uh, everybody in New York. um, And and hopefully you you guys can... uh, can get that curve down and uh, come out on the other side okay. All right. Well, I appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. That was uh, Eric Gonzalez, uh, the Brooklyn District Attorney, talking about some of the uh, challenges that their community is going through right now with COVID-19, uh, with Rikers Island, and trying to protect the lives of the people that are incarcerated on that island, and then criminal justice reform in general. This has been Everyday Injustice. I am your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more stories from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.